Now we don't have any value. So, Langdon, hi. Hello. Hello. I, I have a question for you. I love questions. Would you rather fight one regular-sized ball dandles, but mm-hmm. regular for him, right? Like in the book. Yeah. Or a hundred tiny doctor taluses. I'm gonna have to go with the doctor taluses, um, especially okay, after the last he's a book. Robot, right? Yeah. He's a mm, robot. That's true, but also Baldanders is a super strong, super genius. Uh, right. But I feel like if you could talk to him, you could like he's basically almost like disappearing into his own annoy and like nihilistic way of thinking, right? I suppose, yeah. So you could maybe like push him over the edge and make him just go into his castle and isolate himself forever. It as... would. It does seem pretty easy to push him over the edge, just like out Gotham, and then he's yeah. gonna have to go like be maudlin in his castle. Exactly. Like imagine, imagine if Severian was. I'm not saying Severian is not goth, or some might say he's even emo, but he's not as emo as Baldandles. Which actually brings me to another question that I had for you. I'm intrigued. Severian. Yeah. Is he? A top, a verse, or a bottom? That is and, a that is a great question. And I'm um, opening it up to all the like verse and power bottom and switches and all that stuff. So I believe he gives off big bottom energy to me. Um, he doesn't he doesn't seem like he has the capacity to top. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those like he's so he's so self involved and honestly a bit bratty. That yeah. like the brat bottom, I think, really, really nabs it for him. Yeah. I think the follow-up question should be which Severian, right? That is a so, good question. So I'm gonna say that Severian of the book, like our Severian, is definitely a bottom. But Apu Punchao, for example, Severian, I think he would be a power bottom. I could see that. I could right? see like, that. He would generate in the words of the great always sunny in Philadelphia, he would he would generate all the thrust. Right? For the intercourse. And He'd be then, like a reverse spaceship thrusting backwards, as it were. Yeah, exactly. I mean <laughs> you can you, you can you can imagine for yourselves what generating thrust looks like in that situation. Uh we are explicit on SoundCloud, but I don't think we're that explicit. Um and then Severian like Severian Prime aka uh Pylemon, right? Um he would be a switch. I could Gullius, see that. I... Gullius is a top, right? Like we literally hear about that in the first book, like like he has an iron iron prosthetic penis. That's a top move, right? That is. That's you you've enhanced getting bio enhancements is t- not typically bottom behavior. Yeah, I would agree. So, hello everyone. Um, welcome to the fifth, technically, fourth purple um, episode of The Book of the New Sun. 
Um, this one is going to be a bit different, not just because we're going to talk about <laughs> who's uh, top <laughs> bottom, um, but also because this book is a bit different. And as we said last time, it's pretty much uh, the announcement, the entire book, right? Like it's all the reveals. Some things are opened up and set up for the next book, um, Earth of the New Sun, which we won't be doing, at least for now. But a lot of it is spent, you know, tying up loose ends and bringing the story to its fulfillment and also answering a lot of questions. So a lot of the things that we were able to um, infer in previous books, actually, we can do that because we read the fourth one, right? And a lot of this stuff is, I wouldn't say it's spelled out, but it's more explicitly um, pointed out. And also, much of this book is combat we s talked about this subject last time uh, gene wolf was in the korean war and a lot of his writing was affected by that and we'll talk a bit more about the asians and how much it sucks uh, that yeah. he wrote them the way that he did some of the some of the yeah. negative impacts of his uh, time in the war exactly Exactly. Um, but also just a lot of it is just combat maneuvers and stuff like that. And it, I'm not saying it's not good. Like when you read it, it's sort of interesting and there's a lot of inventiveness in it. And it's also, I think, one of the most Vancean passages of the books because you get all these peoples with their traditions and their mounts and their weapons and stuff like that. It's very Vancean. But there's not a lot we can say about it, right? There's no uh, big reveals. Although I will say a bit of an asterisk here. Some people think that some of the tribes or species of men described in the battle actually work with others, other books by Gene Wolfe, specifically. I, I, the, I have, yeah, I, I've, uh, I'm one of the proponents of that theory. He tends to yeah. have a like quietly interconnected set of books. He's never super explicit, and it's never like the timelines perfectly match up. But he does the classic literary. Thing of like having little nods and this is sort yeah. of rife with them yeah so for example one of the tribes you know there's um dwarves riding on giants and something like that is figured in the fifth head of kerberos in that book as well there's a planet of it's two people i think that are cloning themselves to populate the entire planet and that reminds us of the ashians and how they're described um, and there's also a lot of other hints, you know, with, with the color of the moon, right? The, the moon in uh, Book of the New Sun is green. There's also references to another green planet in other works by Gene Wolfe and so on. So, but other than that, I think we can kind of flip through those passages. Yeah, it's and... one of those things where to, to talk satisfactorily about the combat, we'd have to totally change the mode of how we yeah. establish talking about this. There's a lot to dig into, especially if you're thinking in terms of the um, historical weight of science fiction, the historical evolutionary path of science fiction, th those kinds of things, which are all important and good. But other other people have done those better. We're, we're focusing. We're obviously, yeah. if you've listened this far, we're focusing more on the literary end of it. So. Right. So with that in mind, we can sort of divide the book, the fourth <laughs> book, into, I think, four main passages that are sort of bookended by the combat smack in the middle. So there's a total of five, but there's two on either end that we mostly care about. The first part is 
Severian's um, sojourn in the Pelegrin's tent of healing and the lead up towards the second part, which is the stories of the soldiers, the four, the four stories that we hear. Then there's all the combat stuff. Then um, after combat, there's Severian and the Utark. He meets the... God and then he becomes God. Yeah, so the whole uh, conversation with the Utark and subse subsequent crash of the aerial vehicle that they're in. And then that also encompasses like the March under Vodalus and all that stuff. And then being rescued and becoming the Utark himself and kind of the last passages of the book which tie everything together and set us up for the fifth one. Or close the saga if you prefer to read it that way. So that's, I think, how we would um, approach it. And I think in the first part, the most important and beguiling aspect is Miles. So the, the <laughs> fourth book begins with another skip, but this one is not as... By the way, there's no poem at the beginning of this book, which I think is sort of interesting. I think in general, this book is more dour and somber and melancholy in a lot of ways i think that might be why there isn't a poem but yeah like if uh yeah well we, we also have little things like if the if the various books so i mentioned before the four books here kind of are are structurally meant to resemble the four gospels um mm -hmm. not not a huge leap and then as he builds out the solar cycle you have um the books of Moses and then the post books of Moses elements of the old Testament and then earth as like revelation. Um, so there's that big structural thing, but then as if you keep that kind of frame of mind, you can also see each one being uh, analytics of like aspects of um, views of God through Catholicism. So you have like God, the man you have um, like the church as a political figure, things like that. And then this last one hits more on the, um, traditional view of catholicism as very somber and self-involved yeah so i totally agree i think it's also i think um indicative the the, the skip that happens is last we saw severian he was on the shores of the lake and the claw had um shattered and the skip brings us to him wandering the north um, and seeing the wall off in the distance. Um, I want you to, while we're talking about this, ask yourself, um, when is this wall happening? Right? There are many theories about that, and I don't think the wall itself is happening like in a consistent timeline. Uh, the war That's itself is happening. How I feel too. <laughs> yeah, over different periods, and and the way in which the f very first clue that we get to it is, for that is one of the first things that Severian says when he describes the war, and he says something caught my eye far to the north, a flash I thought a violet just on the horizon. I stared at the point from which it seemed to have come, just as I had convinced myself that what I believed I had seen was no more than a fault of vision. Perhaps some lingering effect of the drug I had been given in the hetman's house. There was a flare of magenta, a trifle to the left of the point I had been staring at. The reason that's important is that those flashes 
Oh, obviously, like ordinance being used, right? Or one of those guns that we saw Vodolus using. But then when Severian will actually be in combat, there's no artillery mentioned, right? There's flying monsters and rifles and destriers and all that stuff. But this artillery is completely absent. And this artillery has also been referenced in the in the past as well, in other books, right? Which leads us to the suspicion that there are varying degrees of technology moving around with the various stages that the war finds itself in, in time, right? We also wind up getting, uh, a little bit later in the book, um, <clears throat> a scene where uh, Master Malrubius uh, returns. Going to hold off on getting too into that before we get to it. But yeah. that establishes that there are, um, you do get explicit statement that things like time travel and the bending of time and space and in fact that's where we got the information that we talked about in the very first episode about the citadel as like a um a ship outside of time that can erupt yeah. into time so yeah, and he speaks the about the atrium of time specifically as well by the way later on in this book and so the notion that the war itself um is a war it, you can think of it like ragnarok you can think of it like the biblical apocalypse where a lot of theological thought is that it's not a metaphorical war, but it's also not a literal, like, in this year they had a war. It's more that it is a description of a universal spiritual war. Yeah. Um, and likewise, this becomes a physical embodiment of that. And because it's sci-fi, that means time travel shit, and that rocks. For sure. So the other, like, little note I want to um, call out here, remember, I think it was the second book where we said that the Destriers aren't actually horses as we think about them. There are very faint notes of that throughout the books, but at the very beginning of the fourth one, um, Severian says, they overlay the hoofprints of the officer's mount, and each was as big as a dinner plate, with no claws showing beyond the soft pads of the toes. So this is the first part where we say, wait, what? The horses don't have claws, and the hoof prints are not as big as dinner plates. I mean, maybe if you have like a really big horse, but they definitely don't have claws. And later down in the book, he will describe, um, just like a few paragraphs later, he says, An officer came first, riding a fine champing blue, whose fangs had been left long, and set with turquoise to match his bardings and the hilt of his owner's estoc, which is a kind of short sword like a gladius. So, the horse has fangs, right? So it's not a horse. And interesting side note here, I was wondering whether I should make this side note, but I decided to do it. Be proud of me, Langdon. It's another derailment. Um, Sherry Tepper's Grass. Have you read it? I have not. Absolutely fantastic book. Sherry Tepper is really an unsung hero of science fiction. She wrote science fiction, you know, back when Tip Tree was using a pseudonym, right? So that people wouldn't know it was actually a woman. And it was just when also Le Guin and Atwood and Butler were working. And she was actually good friends with um, Le Guin, I think, and also in contact with Atwood. And she wrote some really, really good science fiction. But her best book is Grass. And the premise, I won't spoil it, but one of the premises in Grass is that there's a creature called horses that aren't horses at all. In fact, they're like monstrosities. And it's a really scary book because the horses are always like haunting you with the fact that they're called horses, but they're like, um, you know, seen from the corner of an of your eye, which is interesting to consider because she wrote the book, you know, in proximity to Jean writing his. So I wonder what sort of cross-pollination um, there was there. So pressing forward, 
the first big scene is Severian finding a dead soldier. And of course, we all know um, we all know Severian. If he sees a dead thing, then he tries to use the claw on it, right? So he does his thing again um, and tries to resurrect the soldier. Interestingly enough, this time he pricks the soldier's forehead with the claw and places it into his mouth. You should all be screaming like it. Your, <laughs> your screens now that it's the Eucharist, which of course it fucking is. <laughs> um, wow, that's not Catholic at all. No. No, the blood. And you put something in someone's mouth and it transubstantiates them into from a dead thing into a living thing. And um, <laughs> the soldier is resurrected. And Severian and him start to wander around in this daze. Reminder that Severian at this point hasn't eaten in weeks and hasn't slept well. He's also feverish and imagining things. And the soldier was just fucking dead. And we know that the claw like takes time to properly take hold and people can be in a daze after they're resurrected. But there's a few interesting um, conversations between them. The most interesting one, I think, is on the nature of the claw. So Severian tells the soldier, like the soldier asks him, what the fuck is happening? Like, how did you do this? And he starts to tell him about Dorcas's theory about the claw. That the claw works, as she said. She said she thought the claw had the same power over time that Father Inira's mirrors are said to have over distance. I didn't think much of the remark then. And then he says... I'm not really a very intelligent man, I suppose. Not a philosopher at all. But now I find it <laughs> okay, interesting. Man. <laughs> You're dumb, sure. That's one of the main takeaways from this book. Um, she told me, when you brought the Ulan back to life, reminder, he also resurrected the soldier on the way to the house absolute. It was because the claw twisted time for him to the point at which he still lived. When you have healed your friend's wounds, that is, Jonas in the um, waiting room, it was because it bent the moment to one where they would be nearly healed. Don't you think that's interesting? A little while after I pricked your forehead with the claw, you made a strange sound. I think it may have been your death rattle. So you can tell this book is more somber, right? Like this guy is fucking clawing back to life when he uses the claw. Whereas in the past, there have been no like death rattles or you know side effects. And, and we even actually have a shockingly, um, shockingly mature Severian regarding it. Like he's not flippant about that kind of note. He isn't dismissive of it where before, obviously, he would he would discuss their tortures and sort of hand wave them as like, oh, they're necessary. They blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, and here he he actually seems to be haunted by by what happened, which is indicative of what we were mentioning at the end of the last episode, that um, if the first three books are like the tutelage of christ something that makes this book sort of inherently structurally less interesting is this is his ministry so you're like okay i know he's sad because he's witnessing death it's also um it's a very uh buddha-esque moment that he seems to finally uh he's like oh death is real and it's bad oh that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> wow crazy story bro <laughs> um, anyway so uh, uh, sorry gene takes this uh, moment while we're already broaching the topic of time to say a few things that, again, like a lot is going to happen in this discussion, you know, the dominoes are going to fall into place. 
the stuff that we've spoken about before, he takes the time to kind of expand on why all this time mess is happening. And this is what Severian says. The soldier asks Severian how he got to where he is. And this is what he tells him. It's a long story that has nothing to do with you. First of all, dick. Like, <laughs> fuck you. Why, why are you being a dick? I wanted to say Sorry, I that... just resurrected you from the dead. Uh, yeah. Fuck you, man. I did fuck that to tell you to questions. fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did I get here? <laughs> fuck you. That's how I fucked your mom. I'm like, okay, that's how I got here. Like, he's being a total <laughs> asshole to this guy. Um, and by the way, that's going to continue. He's a total asshole to him. Anyway, I wanted to say that in the atrium of time, and he's talking about something this soldier has no idea what he's talking about, right? He's talking to himself, basically. It, well, and he's, to us. So, yeah, it's it's at this point that you start to maybe get notes. Uh, and this becomes far more explicit, both at the end of this book and then throughout Earth, that we, we mentioned it before at the tail end of this book, it's revealed that Severian is personal. And actually, we mentioned that in episode zero, I think, that Severian is personally writing Book of yeah. the New Sun. And he yeah. sends out a couple copies to places. And the one that you're reading, scare quotes, is the one that Gene Wolfe received from outside of time and translated. Hence all the translators notes, all that kind of stuff. Right. He kind of implies that he knows that. So we have two options. Either this actually happened in that discussion and Severian at that point already knew kind of what was going on. And he's like, I need to talk to all of time right now. Not to you, Miles. Fuck you, Miles. Yeah. Um, or alternatively, this is uh, an insertion. Either way, it's really funny that he's like, hey, Miles, very interesting. Go fuck yourself. And then just like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the atrium of time. <laughs> the breaking of the pedestal had tilted the dials so their gnomons no longer pointed to. And I have heard that when that happens, the watches of day stop or run backward for some part of each day. You carry a pocket dial, so you know that for it to tell time truly, you must direct its gnomon toward the sun. The sun remains stationary while Earth dances about him. And it is by her dancing, by the way, the duplicity of sex and gender with God, right? In the Bible, God is referred to as both he ha and her um, interchangeably, which is interesting that he chooses to do that here as well. And it is by her dancing that we know the time. Just as a deaf man might still beat out the rhythm of a tarantula by observing the swaying of the dancers. And this is the crucial part. But what if the sun himself were to dance? Then too, the march of the moments might become a retreat. So... The sun is dancing, right? Because the sun is being consumed by the worm, like the black hole or whatever is consuming the sun, which implies everything that we just said about the books so far, that time is not necessarily linear within them. Because in the days of the dying of the sun, nothing can be relied upon. Now, of course, the converse is also true that when the new sun comes, time will be straightened out right brought back into the fold and made linear once again but of course all these creatures that are trying to make that happen operate outside of those um limitations and now obviously for people who maybe uh uh are read it's doing that and it's like oh that's just sci-fi gibberish um uh, i think there are probably zero of you listening to this that actually are thinking that but uh, i'm required to say this anyway um uh, the big metaphor sign is blaring right now. That's just this is this is metaphor city, baby. Yeah. Um, 
that obviously like it, I mentioned that because I see in some spaces discussion of this as a purely science fiction work. And I think once you remove the John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress-esque allegorical bit from it, it straight up becomes gibberish. Um, yeah. And it's like people can be I mentioned this as well because we have a kind of cultural tiredness towards like Christian themes in art for obvious reason. Not not sort of saying that that's silly. I, I get why. Um especially when you have things like the abortion bans going through and, and all that kind of stuff and the funding of the Iron Dome for basically a combination of geopolitical and then like apocalyptic religious reasons. It, it, it can it can get to you. Um, but in this instance, it's pretty, pretty obvious that it's like the, uh, as mentioned before, they're in an apocalyptic period of the end of days. Uh, I absolutely fucking love that about these books how it's like everything nothing is like real that's also how gene wolf gets away with the discussion of this comes up far more explicitly in earth but he touches on it a bit here as well of does earth of or does book of the new sun occur in our past so do we live in the era after the new sun is ignited or does it exist in our future or is it uh they he comments explicitly on the corkscrew time thing a little bit later but yeah uh i think also right after this passage where he's talking to the soldier who we will still known is named miles perhaps talk about that as well um Severian has another dream and i don't really want to get into the specifics of the dream does we could do like a whole episode just on the dream right uh but he sees master marubius and he sees uh, the Kumeyan and Mirren, her apprentice, you remember her from the Stone Valley, the Valley of Stone, sorry. And um, they say all sorts of cryptic stuff about sleep and the future and so on. And I think at this point, like, you have the capacity to read this dream by yourself. Yeah. But there's a few really interesting passages where Gene explicitly introduces ideas from alchemy and astrology which were sort of in the background of a lot of the other books they were always kind of there there's a lot of transmutation there's a lot of things not as they seem masters with knowledge like bald andals that can kind of like manipulate flesh and metal but here it becomes um pretty much explicit there's one passage that i want to read to you which i think is just also very good like one of the best passages in the book and interestingly enough, it's by Hethel, um, a.k.a. Father Rinire. And he, this is what he says in the dream. I heard his voice as one might hear the squeaking of mice, sometimes driven aground by the photon storms, by the swirling of the galaxies, clockwise and counterclockwise, ticking with light down the dark sea corridors lined with our silver sails. Our demon-haunted mirror sails, our hundred-league masts as fine as threads, as fine as silver needles sewing the threads of starlight, embroidering the stars on black velvet, wet with the winds of time that go racing by. The bone in her teeth, the spume, the flying spume of time, cast up on these beaches where old sailors can no longer keep their bones from the restless, the unwearied universe. Where is she gone? My lady, the mate of my soul. Gone across the running tides of Aquarius, of Pisces, of Aries. Gone. 
gone in her little boat, her nipples pressed against the black velvet lid, gone, sailing away forever from the Star Wars shores, the dry shoals of the habitable worlds. She is her own ship. So first of all, this passage fucking rules. Yeah, it's like, beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful from, from like a literary perspective. And then the other stuff is, you know, this is kind of, we knew that Hethel was a sailor, quote-unquote, a.k.a. an astronaut, but think about the scale that he's talking about here. It kind of reminds you of um, Paul Anderson's Tau Zero, well, I'm not going to spoil that book. That book is fucking a masterpiece, underread, <laughs> um, influenced by Aniara, by the way, which is also an underread masterpiece. Well, it, ship... Influenced by which one? I haven't heard of that one. Aniara? Oh, man, we got to do that. Holy shit. How, Are you not, how... not familiar? No. How do I spell that real quick? Oh, man. So I can A-N-I-A-R-A. That into my A-N-I-A-R-A. So, God, am I going to do this transgression? Like, transgression. Yes, I am going to do a transgression, but I meant uh, a digression. We're death so, sentence. Digress. Boom. <laughs> okay. So, oh, my God. We can do like a it's whole a episode It's a science fiction this. poem? Yes. No, oh, wait, 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 wait. You have no idea. You have no idea how awesome this shit is. So, there's a guy um, who was – wait, I'm looking for his name. I'm looking it for his name. It got turned into an opera. Wait, no, wait, wait. Dude, 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 dude. <laughs> let me let me do this. So this there was this guy called Harry Martinson and he was listen to this, a vagrant. It's like orphaned in a, at a young age in the beginning of the 20th century and he wandered the world on a ship, I just going from, you know, dock to dock working. Then he came back to Sweden and started the young poet movement in Sweden which is like Sweden's yeah. um, main poetic, modernist poetic movement, right? There, if, if you read Scandinavian literature, that name's going to come up. Yeah, exactly. So he, um, he was an anarchist, married to an anarchist firebrand literary figure who wrote um, anarchist journalism. And in 53 to 56, he wrote Aniara, which is a book-length epic science fiction poem, right, like in the tradition of the Iliad or the Odyssey. And it's an anti-nuclear poem about a ship that has, you know, people need to abandon Earth because of nuclear holocaust. And the ship gets hit by space debris, which kills its engines. And now the ship is locked in on a course into the black. It can't change course. It can't go back. It can't turn off because it's no longer powered by engines. It's powered by its own inertia. And now the people on the ship have to come to terms with it. This book is extremely underread, but explicitly, like the people, people have talked about this, the people who wrote these books, influenced, and um, um, the, the three main ones, uh, Paul Anderson, when he wrote Tau Zero. Tau Zero is a story about a ship who has... Um, a mass drive, that is, it eats mass to gain speed, and the brakes stop working. So now as it accelerates, it gains mass because of relativity, so it can eat larger and larger objects, so it keeps accelerating. And, spoilers, it ends up eating the galaxy. It's um, a very, very good book. It's a very good book, and it also influenced Werner Vinge, very good science fiction author, sadly a rabid libertarian, and no. all around asshole, but <laughs> why? <laughs> Upon the Deep is like one of the best space opera books ever written, 
And it also influenced Ursula Le Guin's The Birthday of the World, in which a generation ship also goes off course. Now, the cherry on top of all of this is that in 2018, the book was adapted into a film called Aniara. And I had the distinct pleasure of screening it at Tel Aviv Science Fiction Festival and also giving a few talks about it. It is one of the most depressing movies you will ever watch. Yo, that's on my docket now. It will fuck you up. I'm, I'm serious. I watched this the first time. I had no idea at like 1 a.m. Midway through it, I went to get a bottle of whiskey. Um, and I was weeping by the end of it. It's very depressing. Oh, the, the, the original poem is also depressing, but the movie does really good work to um, adapt it. Anyway, that's the digression. Please read Aniara. It's kind of hard to get it in English, but I think today, following the movie, there might mm -hmm. be like electronic uh, copies. If you can't find one, I would rather that you find one and purchase it. But if you can't, then let me know and I like email me at eden at heavybloggersheavy.com and I will send you a PDF. We got to build the... readership of these things. So, this, uh, it, an aside to the aside, but that's relevant. Um, so a while back, I'd read the uh, so the film The Ring is based on sci-fi novels, um, yeah. sci-fi horror novels from Japan, um, based on three of them. Uh, or rather, the second had come out by the time the movie was made, and he had already been uh, solicited for the third one. So that goes on. Later, he writes three more books, but the sales of the English translations of books one through five weren't enough to translate book six so there's a sixth book that's like a a decade old and all the other five have been translated they're available you can purchase them easily but not the sixth one all because the readership wasn't there to justify both the translation cost and the printing cost and uh the way this ties back is building readership of these things is so fucking important to me um <laughs> yeah like so, go ahead yeah, no, just like if if we can if we can uh, build fire underneath these really cool fucking books, um, that that would that would make me very happy. <laughs> yeah, this looks so fucking awesome. It's it's amazing, and we should totally do um, an episode on it uh, next season. By the way, we'll talk about that near the end of the episode, I guess. Um, but coming back here, so uh, the reason I read you that passage, <clears throat> besides it being incredible, and also hinting. To to Aniara or Paul Anderson's Tau Zero, like with the whole idea of, you know, flying through beyond the galaxies and stuff like that, um, is that mention of uh, Pisces and Aquarius and Aries. Like these ideas within the Christian framework of this work um, cannot be ignored. And in case you wanted to ignore them, there's a passage right after the dream, like immediately after, where Severian says, the sun was behind us. Its beams seemed to have multiplied their strength. Shadows were alchemized to gold. And every green thing grew darker and stronger as I looked. I could see the grain ripening in the fields and even the myriad fish of the sea doubling. He's just quoting the Bible at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's literally a Bible quote just for those not Bible aware. Quote, but he also <laughs> ties it into alchemy. Right? He literally says the word alchemized to gold. And when you put that together with everything that we said so far about biology and genetics in this series, this is Gene telling us that 
as Severian you know, draws closer towards his test of the new sun, he starts to become cognizant, but also to be m more active in his abilities as um, a transmutation, a transubstantiation, right? Like the, the, his footsteps, where he goes and his acts are starting to make the earth stronger. And that's really important because my, th my not theory, it's like a framework again, is that he doesn't reach the test, pass the test, and then he becomes the new sun. He arrives as the new sun, and the test only confirms him, right? Where he becomes the new sun is during this story. That's his journey towards becoming the new sun. And we can see it that the more he goes to the north and gets closer to the war and gets closer to becoming an Utark, the powers and the meaning of the new sun begin to manifest within him. It actually, it, it touches on an element of the more mystic traditions of not just the Bible, but the the ascent of the Messiah uh, through through Judaism, which in contemporary Judaism, no one really takes super seriously. It's pretty broadly like, OK, that's that's metaphorical gesturing for political struggle to attain peace for people. But in the more mystic end, this is a real thing. Um, the And this is also where... Uh, the sort of alchemy comes from. So alchemy is very importantly a combination of science and spirituality, yeah. but in such a way that neither one, either one is only doing about half the work at any given point. You can't focus on it just as a spiritual act because you ignore the real science behind it. Say early alchemists um, led to one. It's where we get the term chemistry from. And that's because them fucking around with their piss a lot did actually teach us a lot about chemistry, but Likewise, there's a spiritual capacity to it where it's like it doesn't work because of physics or because of chemistry. It works because you prime the ground with physics and chemistry and then some spiritual component also occurs. This gets relevant again to the uh, to sort of the mystic traditions of, of Abrahamic faiths, again, specifically when it comes to the Messiah. Because it's sort of this open question, was Jesus always the vessel of the Christos? So that's the fancy theological term for the Christ spirit, the part of God that was embodied in Jesus. Because mm -hmm. um, obviously, th that's where you get the lay terms of like, um, Jesus the man, Jesus the God. Um, and obviously, they were in early forms of alchemy focused on the fact that at some point they had to have been fused together. Um, yeah. Famously, Neil Stevenson talks about this in his book, uh, The Confusion, that confusion is an alchemical term that is confused, fused together, um, which is really funny that it then takes on the meaning that it does. He dives into that a lot more there. But that's relevant here is that there must have been at some point a confusion of the flesh vessel and the spiritual thing. The question becomes, when did that happen? Did that happen when Jesus was born? Did that happen during his um, <clears throat> during being baptized by John the Baptist? Did that occur during his resurrection of Lazarus? So you have all these different moments where it potentially could have been. The lay mm -hmm. read that of the temp that of God is bound by time is that it happened before he was born. He was born. He blah 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 blah. But pretty much every theological text is pretty firm that the spiritual gnomon exists outside of time. The, uh, sorry, naumanon. The theological naumanon of God exists beyond time. So it doesn't make sense that it would be bound that he'd have to be God 
early in his life. And so then you get, uh, obviously it's, it's an unanswerable mystery. It's more one that you're meant to ponder, but did Jesus become Christ at some point in his life? And then did this radiate backwards and make him Christ earlier in his life? Which is a thing that doesn't make sense only if you think linearly with time, but if you think of time, like draw it down and you go, I can put a point here and then color backwards. Are you familiar with um, Michael Moorcock's Behold the Man? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one of so the few Moorcock things that I actually happen to read. Yeah, so he I'm does... I'm such a bad science fiction fan sometimes. He, he does <laughs> uh, an interesting thing, though, with, with time travel but to, and Jesus. But to bring it back, I think that's exactly the question, right? Like, when is Severian the new son? Um, like, was he born the new son? We know that's not true because he has to go through the test and s some of his versions have failed. But this version, who will succeed eventually, and again, we're not going to do Earth of the New Sun, but goes into your sword, which is a higher dimension, and is, by consequence, out of time, was he also always the new son, or was he becoming the new son? So I think here is where Gene is kind of like starting to play with those um, ideas. So let's skip over the anti-communist propaganda for now, <laughs> um, because I want to ask an important question that I think is one of the biggest unanswered questions in the book. Who is Miles? Right? Miles and Severian end up in the tent of the Pelerines, the same acolytes order that Severian has been looking for to return the claw to them. Of course, he can't because the claw is gone, at least as they know it, know it and he does. Um, but they hospitalize him, right? Again, he hasn't eaten in weeks, and Miles is wounded for obvious reasons because Severian brought him back from the dead, and he's um, he can't speak and, and so on. But when Miles gets better, and Severian does as well, they start to converse, and Severian seems to think that Miles is Jonas. Specifically, he thinks that when he resurrected Jonas with the claw, Jonas's spirit that has been on the wind ever since he stepped into Father Inira's um, mirrors has possessed Miles's body. Now, he has a few reasons for that. Miles keeps saying how um, he keeps talking in idioms, kind of like Jonas did. At some point, he has like a saying about the jaguar and, and the fog. And he also says that when he was, before Severian resurrected him, he saw his face shattered in a million mirrors, and he was looking for a beautiful woman, which, of course, Severian thinks is Jolenta. Because if you recall, Jonas was in love with um, Jolenta. And that all leads Severian to assume that Miles is Jonas. But this is one of those things that can't really be solved and that Gene never told us the answer to um, before he died. So I think instead of answering it, maybe let's talk about the options. The first option is that Severian is correct. Right? Miles is Jonas. And that has for it everything that I just said, right? The claw messes with time. Jonas disappeared through Father Rhaenyra's mirrors, which we know are tied to the claw in some way. Like, they've been explicitly mentioned in the same sentence a few times as opposites or complementary objects. And Miles does indeed sound like Jonas 
for a few um, sentences using like outdated old earth idioms that there's no reason for Miles to know if he's just like a random guy. Um, and yes, the most beautiful woman in the world as established in the books is Jolenta and so on. The second theory is that Severian is right, but it's not because of the claw and it's not Jonas's spirit. That theory says that Miles is the body that Jonas would later use to repair himself when he crashed on the planet. So this supposes that the war is happening in the past and that when um, Jonas will crash, as we know, he'll use biological body parts to augment his robotic uh, frame and that will be Miles. And Jonas, when he speaks, you know, says old Earth idioms and stuff like that, he's speaking with Miles' voice. And the reason that he his, he sounds outdated and so on is because this war is happening far in the past. The third option, which is my preferred option, I don't know where you fall on this, Langdon, but is that Severin is wrong. Severin is just wrong. And it's not Jonas. And... It's just hallucinations. And the reason he sounds similar to Jonas is because none of that is really specific or characteristic of one person. And two people can use idioms, right? It's not like a, a unique attribute. And it's not, it's not by mistake that Severian is wrong. It's kind of like little Severian. It's, it's a decoy. It's a foil by Gene to kind of poke fun at you, right? And say, look, not everyone is someone else. And not every single character in this book is like this deep allegory. Sometimes it's just a soldier. And the reason that Severian sees Jonas in him is because Severian really misses Jonas. And that's why I like this reading, because it really humanizes Severian. He misses him. Like, if you think about this fucking series of books, Severian has it rough, man. <laughs> right? Like, Yeah, outside of the horrible things that he does on occasion, he... He yeah. does have a really bad life. Like, it's yeah, like, not good. <laughs> he loves Torcas and Torcas loves him, but his lo their love is, like, tainted by this gap between them, especially when Torcas realizes that she was dead and kind of drifts away from him into depression. Jolenta is, well, Jolenta, right? Like, with her augmentations, and also he rapes her, right? So not really a loving relationship. And then Baldanders and Talos, we know what they feel about Severian. And Agia fucking tries to kill him all the time. Agilus tried to kill him with a fucking poison plant from another planet. Um, He's constantly so getting lost in the woods and shit and then just yeah. wandering around hungry for like weeks on end. Yeah, Vodulus like... Which, which is yeah. another hint at his like semi-divine nature already because who the fuck can just live in the woods without eating anything for like yeah. five weeks? Yeah. So I love how chilly is about that. He's like, yeah, I didn't eat for like a month. Then I found a dead guy, and they did, he just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so Thekla obviously died. Well, she didn't, but he thinks she did. Uh, Vodolus is using him, and, and so on and so forth, and the only ray of light, like the only person who's nice to him is Jonas, right? And they become really good friends. So obviously when he, he resurrects someone, a soldier... He, he really wants it to be Jonas. He wants Jonas back. And he has no... Like, at this point, he kind of understands that he's the Messiah. But he can't bring the one person that he wants to bring back 
he can't bring him back. That's really sad, right? It's really fucking sad. So I think he's doing some wish fulfillment here um, and reading Jonas into Miles just because he really wants him uh, back. And I actually really like that. I like that reading. It's one of my favorite, like, it's it's non, it's controversial, right? Not a lot of people read it that way. Um, but that's how I choose to read it, just because I think it's really beautiful and, and touching. I, uh, uh, I have a, yeah. it, not, I, it, this is going to blow your mind when I tell you my reading. I think that um, Miles it's is Jonas. Baptist. <laughs> not, <laughs> not quite. Um, Miles is a Jonas in an allegorical sense similar mm -hmm. to how little severian is meant to be an alternate severian but whether he's meant to literally be genetically the same severian isn't it's not answered because the answer isn't meaningful so there is on the pure um eventness end miles very well could not be jonas there's a whole lot that could make him not jonas like that it, yeah. it's sort of undeniable that that option has to remain on the table because again the amount that Severian's going on is threadbare at best, but yeah, and it's I pretty clearly end, meant to, yeah. especially at this point in the books, um, granted all of them have been like this, the allegorical function sort of takes supremacy over the literal function, especially in the fucked upness of the dying sun, that it's yeah. like, can one thing be more than one thing? Or alternatively, can several different things be the same thing, which is... The same question, but reversed. Like, if Miles and Jonas yeah. are separate people, can they also be the same guy? And yeah, I think a lot of people point towards how the conversation ends. Well, Severian tells him that Jolenta is dead, and then the soldier visibly, like, he goes empty, and then turns and walks away. And they're like, that proves that he's Jonas, right? Because he just told him that the woman in love is dead, which explains his behavior. But I think it's just this guy like being pissed off with Severian, right? Like this guy comes to him and says, look, the last thing I remember is like waking up next to you and walking this dark road. Can you just tell me who the fuck I was? And instead, Severian is like telling him about how Jonas would have said that was the basket story that had been filled with water. Shut the fuck up, Severian. What, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> he tells him about this woman who was dead and you apparently loved her forever. And he, he just like, fuck this shit. I <laughs> like he just turns and leaves. So whether you land in Miles is Jonas or Miles isn't Jonas or whichever version, um, that's kind of that. Let's backtrack a bit. So in the tent, there's a few people. Severian and Miles but also uh, three soldiers. The most uh, important one, and the character I like most, is Foyla, uh, a woman soldier, and an Asian. I fucking love the Asian. Yeah. Fucking so love him. The first, um, the first Asian character we're actually going to get. And Foyla is sort of the translator for him, right? Like she, by virtue of her uh, having fought in the war, she has um, gotten close to Asians and she knows how they speak. So this guy, God, Gene, you're such an idiot. This is so stupid. So there's this thing that I really like. Okay, a bit of a digression, but it's a small one. It's really funny to me that whenever capitalists talk about communism, they end up projecting what capitalism actually is um, on communism, right? Like this whole idea of um, things happen in the U.S. and someone says, 
this is like communist Russia, but it's happening in the U.S. right now. It's not like communist Russia. It's like the U.S. today. Right? They keep projecting all of their failures onto this imagined version of what communism is. And this is exactly what happens here. So the Asian, their thing is that they only talk in rote phrases um, and they conform to like correct thought. So if you've read any communism, you know that this is like a reference to Mao, right? But this attempt to paint communist citizens as automatons that aren't allowed to deviate from the truth of accepted dogma is a projection. Because if you actually go and read Mao, if you, for example, go and read Against Book Worship, which is literally a book that Mao wrote, <laughs> which is all about how reality is not in theory and books shouldn't be elevated above the material conditions of the people and that the past shouldn't have a hold on the present, then you know that that's fucking nonsense. And it's just a capitalist imagination of, specifically here, North Korea. Right? Like this idea, look, North Korea is, is complicated, right? Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and say that North Korea is the perfect communist state because e it obviously, even, yeah. Even the blanket, like, Marxist-Leninist position tends to be that you're not going to have a state that is incapable of being uh, critiqued. Like the whole point of yeah. revolutionary self-criticism is that it's a perpetual act that generates a better revolution over time, which means necessarily there are dialectics takes hold. You can make a thing better. Yeah. So That's, even if it was great, it's not great. Even if it was great, you can make it better. Yeah, for sure. So going back to North Korea, which obviously this, this reference is like, you can say a lot of things and criticize North Korea, but the second that you fall into this idea, oh, all of North Koreans are the same. They're all these like robots who obey the glorious leader and, and follow his words every step of it. Like uh, Kim Jong-un is a, a, like a perfect, absolute monarchist dictator that decides by diktat and rule of law. Like, uh, sorry, rule of, of his word. That's wrong. It's not true. Like North Korea has a robust political system that limits and fights with and agrees with and critiques the supreme leader, right? He has like um, a body of advisors and generals and ministers. And there are varieties in North Korea of like language and culture and economical structures between North North Korea and South North Korea and the center of it and Pyongyang and the rest of the country. Like it's, a diverse place just like everywhere else and of course this becomes more egregious when you consider that the u.s committed genocide in north korea like straight up genocide i'm talking firing pits mining indiscriminate bombing uh biological weapons chemical weapons like the fucking works um north korea is where by the by i have a whole episode we talked about it called Wynal Smith, right? He invented um, PSYOPs and he invented it based on North Korea and Vietnam later on, but North Korea uh, especially. Like horrible, horrible things were done there. And then for Gene Wolfe to turn around and say, oh, those communists are all the same. Like, fuck you. 
Yeah, it's we we get so in in America, our um we have parallel bugbears to those experienced uh to those experienced in places like Israel or Syria. The difference is that while the origins of the threats to say things like the state of Israel, the state of Syria are more complex and deserve more uh, scrutiny than are presented. In America, they're almost entirely fictitious. So the, this image of North Korea will bomb us. One, not really feasible for a whole bunch of basically like engineering reasons, like the likelihood of them making a rocket that could cross all of the ocean to hit us. Uh, very low. Um, then, like with a lot of complex things like this, like why do certain states want nuclear weapons um why do they want these kinds of tools we look at the material conditions of say the genocide carried out against north korea and the fact that america has made it explicit through um both continued military presence in south korea um we've stymied political talks between north korea and south korea that they've attempted to have over the decades we uh the white house famously got very mad when there were the meetings uh, in the Blue House between uh, the heads of North Korea and South Korea a couple of years ago, because they didn't allow American diplomats in the building. They were like, no, these are, we are all Koreans and we want to discuss potential terms for unification or at least partnership. And America flipped its shit. At the mere thought of, they're not even neighbors. They, like in Korea, they all consider it, we are Korea, we are just currently split politically right now. Like yeah. there, there's not really a sense of like there are two Koreas. There was one Korea that is uh, experiencing a fissure. Now, I bring this up because when you have an existential threat in the face of America that openly lusts for destroying you, not just not just defeating you, but like we've had declassified and one has to wonder why we declassified this, if not as like a kind of threat. Um plans to basically flatten north korea with nuclear weapons which yeah. we have more of now than when we made those plans it's not it's a threat that hasn't really gone away and you hear that the biggest nuclear superpower in the world lusts to annihilate you atomically it's not shocking that you want to get a weapon even yeah. if it's not very useful so it like and that doesn't necessarily then justify every potential grievance carried out by a government that's that's not really how political science works it things get complex like that really quick but um this also doesn't touch on how much of what we're told is invented as state propaganda to paint people as subhuman this is more yeah. to say that like you get this much more complex picture of them as people and then you look at the book and it's like no he says at one point that they're subhuman and don't have souls yeah, so I just want to quote here and, and go back to this idea of, of projection, right? That he's actually talking about capitalism, right? So this is, it starts by this is the Asian um, saying one of the wrote saying. So they only speak in like memorized um, idioms, right? They don't have they don't express themselves using their own words. So this is one of the things that um, they say: How shall the state be most vigorous? It shall be most vigorous when it is without conflict. How shall it be without conflict when it is without disagreement? How shall disagreement be banished? By banishing the four causes of disagreement. Lies, foolish talk, boastful talk, and talk which serves only to incite quarrels. How shall the four causes be banished? 
by speaking only correct thought. Then shall the state be without disagreement. Being without disagreement, it shall be without conflict. Being without conflict, it shall be vigorous, strong, and secure. This literally describes capitalism and not communism. In capitalism, you can say whatever you want as long as you don't disagree with the framework of the ruling class of capitalism. If you've ever tried to self-describe yourself as a socialist to a capitalist and see how they react, again, when I say capitalist, I mean someone who believes in capitalism because 98% of people who call themselves capitalists aren't capitalists because they don't have capital. But people who think that's a good uh, theory, they are unable to to accept an alternative. And Foyler says that before. If they admitted even to themselves that such talk meant something, that is unstructured talk, then it would be possible for them to hear disloyal remarks and even to make them. That would be extremely dangerous. As long as they only understand and quote approved texts, no one can accuse them. Like what happens in capitalism. That if you quote from the wrong book, let's say the Communist Manifesto, or Lenin, or God forbid, the ultimate evil, Stalin, the worst person to have ever existed, literally Hitler times 500, then you are a tanky, you are a traitor, you are um, genocidal, you want to kill everyone, you're red fashion, all that fucking nonsense. So it's really, really hilarious how powerfully uh, Gene projects exactly what happens under capitalism onto communist um, societies. Okay, I think that's the becomes, last. Yeah, it becomes right. fascinating in the storytelling component that he then treats the Ashian with like such a rich level of humanity. Like that's something that so he goes out of his way to just like be like a crazy anti-communist. He's he's racist in in yeah. this section. Yeah. Um, and then so the the second part of of the first half of the book. Um, in case, in case you're looking at, uh, the time right now and wondering like, man, how long will they go on for the, the, the basically back half of the episode tree is, is triage. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> but in the back half of this moment in the Pellerine camp, um, there is a storytelling competition. And if I remember correctly, it's that one person w is about to get married and oh, in so, order to wait, 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 that's my, my favorite part of like the entire fucking series of books. So we can't do it like as an as a remark. I really want to get into these stories and what they mean. Um, which is the literally the next part, it's like the next thing that happens. Right? I will wait for my thoughts on uh, the the paradox of how beautifully he treats the Ashian for for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so let's set this up, and then we'll talk about that because I agree with you that it's very interesting. So those uh, three soldiers. The Asian plus two Commonwealth uh, soldiers, I didn't write their names down. I'm really sorry. So we call them Soldier One, Soldier Two, and the Asian. And they all want to marry Foiler. Of course, this is like um, gallows humor. Right? It's like trench humor. I don't actually think they're going to marry Foiler. And by the way, they're all going to die. <laughs> like in a few chapters, uh, the, the, the tent gets bombed and they all fucking die. Um, so the way that they foiler is kind of like a mischievous person right and she says that sure i'll marry one of you i'll marry the person who tells me the best story 
And because I obviously can't be impartial, because I'm the one that's going to be doing the marrying, I will let Severian um, judge, because he's a, a, a official-looking figure. He doesn't know any of us, so he can be impartial. And so are told um, four stories, because Foyler decides to um, tell her own story. Now, the reason that I really, really, really love this passage is that the non-Asian stories are perhaps Gene Wolfe at his most um, Borgian, right? They're all magic realist. They're all very um, Borges or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, or that kind of like magic realist literary tradition, and I fucking love them. So the first story is um, obviously takes place in the south of Argentina, Right, like it said, it's in the south, and there's frozen islands there. It's not really, or maybe Chile. It's not very hard to, uh, you know, put one and one together and understand that it's the south of the continent. And there's kind of like, um, sort of like a pseudo Icelandic almost culture living there. The first soldier uh, comes from, and it's a classic tale of like betrayal between two brothers who um, love the same woman, but actually love honor and duty. And this idea of being a man for your family more than they love themselves and the more that they love their um, families. There's a really beautiful passage that goes, but all the men of the South love their women. It is for them that they face the sea in winter, the storms and the freezing fogs. It is said that as a man pushes his boat over the shingle, the sound the bottom makes grating on the stones is... My wife, my children, my children, my wife. God damn it, dude. God fucking damn it, this guy could write. Like, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Like, imagine the susurration of, like, the, the boat on the gravel of the shore and kind of, like, how it makes that swish sound, which is um, that sentence. But the, the story ends up criticizing those ideas, right? Um, and criticizing men who live just for for duty and um, live just for authority and, and, and duty and honor. So it, it ends with um, this, a foiler says, in criticism of the story, I am saying that the things we love in others and admire in ourselves spring from things we do not see and seldom think about. Gundolf, which is the hero of the story, like other men, had the instinct to exercise authority. Its proper growth is the founding of a family. And women too have a similar instinct. In Gundolf, that instinct had long been frustrated as it is in so many of the soldiers we see here. So it's kind of a way for Jean to, in a very Christian way, right? Criticize the violent soldier and, and, and paint him as like perversing something that is good, essentially. The idea to, of exercising authority and teaching others and being in command of them, but then twisted into violence and war. So the second story, and I think the stories get better as they go along, <laughs> is the second soldier who is um, cockier, well, literally. There's a part where he says, the best and cockiest cock will win, which is, you know, sorry, but kind of funny. It's kind of funny sentence. 
Like, okay, man, you're horny. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, no, that's cool. So his <laughs> it's story, not illegal. yeah. So his story is more of like um, a children's story, but again, it's very magic realist, especially in its ending. So there's this cock, um, who is the cockiest cock, right? He's this like beautiful bird with black feathers, and mostly he just like walks around and bosses everyone around, right? Like threatens them with with his claws, and um, at some point he oversteps himself and commits the classic sin of hubris. He goes up to the highest point in the entire uh, farm, and there, as the sun drove out the shadows with lashes of crimson and gold, he screamed again and again that he was lord of all feathered things. Seven times, of course, he crawled so, and he might have got away with it, for seven is a lucky number, but he could not be content with that. An eighth time he made the same boast and then flew down. So you can kind of get to see this magic realist thing I was talking about with that sentence, right? And then, sadly for him, angels are feathered, right? So when he said that he is the lord of all feathered things, he said that he is the lord of angels. And angels, um, as you might know, are vengeful creatures. So an angel descends and challenges... um, the cock to a duel. Of course, the the angel wins, right? Like it's an angel, <laughs> and of course it's gonna it transforms into an eagle and it kind of kicks the the cock's ass, and then uh, the the cock can't fight anymore, and he says, "Then the cock, whom they had all thought dead, lifted his head. You are doubtless very wise, angel, but you know nothing of the ways of cocks." A cock is not beaten until he turns tail and shows the white feather that lies beneath his tail feathers. My strength, which I made myself by flying and running and in man and battles, has failed me. My spirit, which I received from the hand of your master, the pan creator, has not failed me. Eagle, I ask no quarter from you. Come here and kill me now. But as you value your honor, never say that you have beaten me. And then the angel says, the pan creator is infinitely far from us, and thus infinitely far from me, though I fly so much higher than you. I guess at his desires, no one can do otherwise. And he flies away and lets the cock live. So first of all, it's just so good. <laughs> it's just really good, and it's really well written. But I think this story has even more direct correlations to the Book of the New Sun, right? Like the this is kind of a warning against Severian's hubris as the new son. Like, don't forget that your power comes to you from the increate, the pan creator, God, right? Think about, uh, this is, well, I'm I'm becoming Langdon, right? Um, (laughs) Think about Christ on the cross, right? Like, why have you forsaken me? My power is from you. I'm not I'm not like this all-powerful being, and that's the tragedy of Christ, right? Like he has all these powers, but he's he can die. So the but the cock in many ways is kind of like Jesus, in which in he says, I'm dead, but I'm not defeated, right? I'll come back, people will believe in me, and my kingdom will come again, and so on. So I think that's uh, uh very interesting. And then comes the Asian story. Go ahead, Langdon. So 
I don't, I don't remember how the Haitian, or the Haitian story. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> he's Haitian now. I don't remember how the story goes because unfortunately, um, fortunately slash unfortunately, one of uh, Gene Wolfe's uh, great capacities as a writer is he clearly just likes to write well and write stories. He actually mentions this offhandedly in Book of the New Sun where he's like, yeah, I just like, th- he puts the words into the mouth of Severian where it's like, I just like stories. Stories are yeah. fun. Um, uh, so it, as, the, the as story... you know from listening to these, it there are multiple different stories that are a size. He reads one to little Severian. He reads a couple from the book, the brown book. Um, there's these. The Kindle. Um, yeah, these are obviously a great deal more allegorical. So like the shape shifting thing yeah. and the cock is cl- that's clearly Severian and it, yeah. but it, with so, the Asian, let me just summarize like the actual story and then you can talk about got like, it. the meaning. So it, there are people in his village who always take his stuff and are rowdy and like disrespectful. And the man goes to the capital to get justice from the judge. But the judge, instead of um, helping him just goes, go back and tell them that what they're doing is wrong and they beat him. And he goes back to the judge and he tells him the same thing. Like, oh, they're very wrong. They're very bad. Go and tell them that they're very bad. And they beat him again. And he goes back and forth until at the end of the day, um, at the end of these uh, times, the judge is like, okay, what's going on there? And his persistence and sticking to the correct thought instead of killing them himself, going to the authorities is rewarded and um, they're sorted out and he like lives forever happy ever after and so on. Um, so the thing that I find most fascinating about the, uh, this story um, is mostly the level of humanity and depth that's given uh, to the Asian. Um, it uh, man, my my, I lost my thoughts there for a second. Uh, after all of the anti-communist propaganda and racism that like permeates this, the earlier part of the book, you'd imagine that a story from the mouth of the Asian would be something like bland, flavorless, um, without real insight. But it winds up being a like a rather human tale. Granted, it's still built with some of the anti-communist rhetoric of like um oh well uh communism doesn't actually work to do the things that it says it's going to do but that's easy as a communist that's easy to hand wave where it's like well yeah they're perpetual processes and people are still people like it's not communism isn't magic that's not how it works but the fact that it is it runs aground against the the thought that he'd uh not runs aground, it runs counter to the thought that Wolf had put forward that they're they're thoughtless, they don't have feelings, they don't have personhood, they don't have souls. Because he's telling mm-hmm. the story about the suffering of a man, the the experience of suffering, the yearning for um for both freedom and peace. Um and he per- specifically gives uh Foyla as a foil to him in order to translate it, and she adds these other deeper layers of of humanity that all of these other for, for lack of a better way to approach this all these other men who happen to additionally be soldiers view him brusquely and view him as having no worth and no honor including severian himself mm-hmm. but a woman who is a nurse is able to actually 
like relay to them like no there's personhood inside of here there Wait, is foila is a soldier oh sorry not foila um she is yeah oh yeah. i thought she was a pelerin for some reason ava ava is the pelerin okay um but she actually is the one that says that the asian is not human right she's the one who says that wow so i got Fo that all mixed up yeah so that's it, it I get it. Oh, that's weird that I, uh, a fellow I think soldier. that actually fits into your reading, though, because Foya is a soldier with empathy. Right? Like, she can see to the other side and understand them instead of seeing them as a block of wood that they chop at and kill. Which I think is interesting in, like, a yeah. Christian way. Uh, yeah, and it, it, that's more just the thing that I find... Um, really intriguing yeah. and it, it presents him as a potential equally footed um suitor like the the notion of we're going to put him forward as uh we're going to put him forward as one of the people who can compete for her hand in marriage is scoffed at by everyone else but um she herself was adamant and like no yeah. you don't Except you don't know you don't know what's inside of him so yeah. So I, I want to close off this section by actually quoting some of my favorite sayings by him. And it's also interesting because they're supposed to be bad. But again, like everything that capitalists say about communism, you're like, yeah, good. That's good stuff, not bad stuff. So my favorite one is, behind everything, some further things found forever. Thus the tree behind the bird, stone beneath soil, the sun behind earth. Behind our efforts, let there be found our efforts. It's just really, really cool. And also, the citizen renders to the populace what is due to the populace. What is due to the populace? Everything. I mean, yeah. Good job summarizing communism. And then, let there be clean water for those who toil. Let there be hot food for them and a clean bed. Then they will sing at their work and their work be, will be light to them. Then they will sing at the harvest and the harvest will be heavy. That's like a sample of stuff that the Asian says. So now, before the last story, there's uh, a passage that, again, we're going to skim over because it kind of like drops another domino that we talked about last um, episode. There's a guy in that camp that met Master Palemon when he was a torturer. And this is where the theory of Palemon as Severian Prime comes from. Because he describes Palemon's um, steps in life, and they're literally Severian's life. It, he tells that Palemon um, committed some sort of crime, and was exiled to be a torturer, and um, a carnifax, and this is where this person met them. They were being tortured for a crime they committed. But Palemon decided to stick with the order, become master, and, and go back. So that's where all that theory came from, just to close that knot. Um, if you want to read that passage for why it's Severian Prime, then that's the passage that you want to read. After that, we get um, Foyler's story. Oh, I found the names. The first soldier is called Halvard, and the second is called Melito. Um, and the Asian is just called the Asian. So Foyler tells a story, and it's by far the best story, like hands down the best story. And also the most, um, I think more than Borges, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez kind of reminds me of 100 Years of Solitude, right? Uh, and the story goes like this. In, in a faraway land, which is obviously Foyler's um, home, uh, 
uh, there's this beautiful princess, because of course there is, and she has many suitors. And she's this like firebrand. She refuses to be tied down by like gender norms and she's fierce and so on. So she's not just going to marry them. Um, she sets the top three of them a challenge. She lets go a lark, lets it fly into the air, and tells them that whoever returns the lark to her um, will be her husband. What they don't know is that the lark always returns to her and that she has some sort of like shape-shifting powers or just a disguise, depending on how you want to read it. And the first two happen upon the lark and they covet it. Right? The first one wants to wound it so that he can capture it and then the second one wants to trick it. But the lark turns into an angel, which is just her, the princess, and kills them. The last one... Um, follows the lark and follows the angel that he eventually happens upon and says that he wants to go through the best route. Not the quickest, not the easiest, but the best route back to her and, and to the lark. And what happens is that they end up having adventures over like a decade or at least like a, a, a few years until at the end the angel... Um, reveals that he's actually the woman. Um, and they go back to her mansion, and the lark is there. The lark just comes back after she lets it go, and they didn't need to hunt it down. It just came back to her, of course, because she's the most beautiful and so on, so the animal returns to her. And because this person um, chose the best route, he got to know her and spend time with her and hear her stories and become her friend and her lover and so on. And now she can uh, marry him. And it ends with, some say the wedding of the youngest suitor and the armager's daughter was the finest ever seen in my land. It's just a really good story that I can't do justice to here. But of course, in the allegorical sense, it means a few things. First of all, I think it's really cool that it's kind of feminist, right? Like the story that wins is a story of the woman and it's a story about like being independent from the suitor and wanting the suitor to like come into the relationship together instead of like whisking her away or tricking her but also that it's lit it's the best story right and it's clearly the story that wins even though severian like excuses himself and never passes judgment and i think it's it's really interesting that it's a story that's supposed to decide who gets to marry her. And it's a story about marriage and the woman actually deciding. And this is basically her saying, none of y'all are going to marry me, right? Like none of you were, were good enough at the end of the day. But it's also, of course, a story about Severian, who went on this really long journey to find something, specifically to return the claw to the Pelerines, only to discover that the true, uh, the true friends, the true journey were the friends we made along the way or whatever. Like he always had it in him. He always had the claw. He always had the power. He didn't actually need to go on this journey to become the new son. He was always the new son already and so on. I, I find this passage and the four stories to be like really beautiful and one of the best written passages um, in the book. So I um, very much recommend it. And now we get to Langdon's favorite part. <laughs> well, so, Severian meets God. So there's a bunch of fighting. Uh, again, we're going to skip that. It's, it's, 
if we were a different kind of podcast, there's a whole lot to chew into there, but um, we're not in the midst of fighting. He winds up uh, meeting God. Um, so wait, Ash encounter- is God, right? What? Ash is God. Uh, the Utark. So before the Utark, dude, you forgot Ash. Is Ash? Oh, hit me with that. That's that's where he meets God, no? I don't think I've ever read Ash as like being a divine figure like that. So, yo, hit I, me I up. I don't think he's actually God. So, uh, <laughs> these fucking books are so convoluted. Oh my that's god, that's right. <laughs> this, this episode is gonna be so long. I want to fucking die. Anyway, so uh, he whatever. There's Ava, the Pelerine. She tells him stuff that we already know. Like the claw is not a miracle working machine. What the fuck are you talking about? She also asks about his sister, by the way. <laughs> which is interesting. Like, she's the first person to say, Severian, isn't that like a sister-brother couplet kind of name? Where's your sister? Um, which is interesting. But she also sends him on a task to... So there's a guy. He's called Ash. He's an anchorite. Right? He's like a loner monk sort of guy. And he refuses to... Um, he refuses to, to get out of his hut and come back to the fold, even though the war is about to wash over his place, and Ava is worried that he's going to die. I'd like this, some sort of bomb or something will fall on his house, and he will die. So she asks Severian to go to his hut and convince him to come back. Here's the thing, though. <laughs> the house that Ash is in is actually a weather station from the future. Um, oh, fuck. I forgot about the motherfucking wizard tower. How the, the weather tower, yeah. How did I forget about this? Yeah. So <laughs> here's the thing about Ash. Ash is from the future, and he actually serves the Hyrodules. Um, And we'll talk about that in a second. His house, the second floor, is in the far future. Um, a few cycles after everything that happens in Earth. So remember how we said it was like a flood and then the Earth multiplies and the fish in the sea and everything becomes green and then the conciliator comes along and frees the people from tyranny and then the, the Utarks come and the sun starts to die and then the new sun comes and the Earth gets flooded again and so on and so forth. So a few cycles after that, the Earth is entirely frozen and the Hyrodules start to send people back into the past, right? Remember that Hyrodules experience time backwards. So Ash is one of those people, and his job is to understand how the future of the frozen Earth connects with Severian's version of events. His first floor is in Severian's time. And that's the reason that Ash doesn't want to come back and, and come out of that hut, Right? Uh, because he's not um, of that time. And there's a few really interesting things that happen during Severian's visit. First of all, I alluded to this last time. This is where we get confirmation that the Hyrodules were created by people, but they're also their masters. When Severian meets Ash for the first time. Um, he says that he looks like Famulimus. 
right? He looks like her chiseled, statue-like um, face. He says, I felt that as the faces of the statues in the gardens of the house absolute had imitated the faces of such beings as Famulimus, Barbetus, and Osipago, so their faces were only imitations in some alien medium of such faces as the one I saw now, that is, of Ash's face. So this is confirmation that the Hyrodules were modeled on people, right? like the humans of the future, which fits in with um, Kiriaka's history of humanity creating these AIs or machines or other forms of life that are the Hyrodules, and then them traveling back because they send Ash back, right? They build this house. They allow him to go back into the past and so on. Um, the second thing is just all that discussion about the frozen um, Earth and whether that is Severian's future or not. So Severian asks, is this inevitable, right? Is this inevitable that this is what will happen? Um, what's called the last glaciation and everything will um, freeze over and nothing um, will come about. So Severian says, um, the uh, sorry, Ash says, the scene you see is many thousands of years in your future. And Severian says, but before this, the ice must have come from the south, right? So it should have like, it, it, it had to have creeped all the way here. So you're telling me that all these civilizations, all these places that I know are below the house now, right? Um, and again, Ash says, at this time, many of your people are already gone. Those you call the Kakogens, which we know is a derogatory term for the Hyrodules, have mercifully carried them to fairer worlds. So as the Hyrodules travel backwards for time, they already know that the ice is coming and they can, you know, uh, airlift or space lift um, <laughs> all of the humans off the planet before the ice um, overtakes them. And then Ash says, uh, Severian says, I have always found that men of religion tell comforting things that are not true, while men of science recount hideous truths. The chattel in Manea, which is the leader of the Pelerines that sends him on this task, said you were a holy man, but you appear to be a man of science. And you said your people has sent you to our dead earth to study the ice. And then Ash says, the distinction you mentioned no longer holds. Religion and science have always been matters of faith in something. It is the same something. Which goes back to what Langdon said about alchemy. Now Ash, the tree in alchemy, is a very important um, meeting point between many different materials. It's, it's a hybrid, it's a combination, right? And this again goes back to this idea of alchemy as a joining of material truths and um, spiritual uh, truths and so on. So the, the alchemy kind of allegory and illusions um, continue. And then further along the conversation, and this is the, like, the, the crux of it, um, Ash tells Severian that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily his uh, future, right? Severian says, I am not a thing of the past. I belong uh, to the present. And Ash says, 
from your own viewpoint, you are correct. But you forget, I cannot see you from your viewpoint. This is my house. It is through my windows that you have looked. My house strikes its root into the past. Right? Um, it's funny I, because yeah. it, he, it winds up modeling, um, for those of us who've read a lot of science fiction and horror, um, it... Gene Wolfe feels like here he's, he's evoking an inversion of Rats in the Walls um, by Lovecraft, which is um, a very, very good story. If you cover with your hand the first paragraph where he throws the N-word around, um, it then very, very beautifully stops having any slurs whatsoever after paragraph one. So you skip that one. Um, but in that one, it's... Uh, a house, a modern house, uh, or let me rephrase that. There is a modern addition built on top of an old house, and they know that the old house is built on top of an older basement, and the plot of that story is basically that his cat, whose name is a racial slur, um, hears something in the wall, and the guy keeps going further and further down his house trying to find where there's a hole that could have let something in. And as he goes down, he finds... So there's like... A, bit of a house from the early 20th century it's built on top of something from the like 17th or like 18th or 19th century the basement is from like the 1100s this is in england um he goes further down he finds like a little crawl space and that leads to like a saxon ruin and then below there a celtic ruin um and or like a roman ruin then a celtic ruin and as he keeps going down it basically archaeologically goes backwards through time until he finds the fungus people that are you know the the proto human or pre-human race on earth and he has a spooky lovecraft experience in his basement um and this tower is functionally the same except uh time zero time zero has the same point but it goes in the opposite direction so it's a tower that builds upward and the further up you go the further away from the present you are and i just thought it was a really um it's a really neat and obvious kind of inversion that you can do is take this very like well-noted story within science fiction and horror writing and by yeah. simply flipping it you get this like uh really wonderful and strange you open up a lot of wonderful and strange questions that um ash and severian directly get into which is which future does this tower go into so ex so this is exactly the next part where severian says i met another man who said he was from the future once he was green, remember that guy, nearly as green as those trees, and he told me that his time was a time of brighter sun. Master Ash nodded. No doubt he spoke truly. But you tell me that what I see now is but a few lifetimes away, that it is part of a process already begun, and that this will be the last glycation. Either you are a false prophet, or he was. And then Ash says, and this is a really good part of the, the, the conversation, I am not a prophet, nor was he. No one can know the future. We are speaking of the past. <laughs> right? So what Ash is telling him, you are my past. So I know what is going to happen to you. But if you ask me about your future, now I'm looking at your future. And I don't know if you're the Severian that becomes my past or not. I just know there's a Severian that's in my past. Whether you're going to go to my future for, with the last glycation, or you're going to go to the future of the green man with the brighter sun, is 
no one can know that, right? Now, if we read between the lines, what he's actually saying is, this is the future where the new sun doesn't come and the earth freezes over. But the Hyrodules are now intervening to bring about the new sun. So at the same time, you are my past, the new sun failed, the last glaciation happened, everything falls over, and I'm from that time. But at the same time, this will never happen because the Hyrodules are coming back full time and they're going to make sure that this doesn't happen. In fact, at some point, uh, Severian fucking kidnaps this guy. <laughs> I uh, like uh, uh, this. The kidnapping rocks so hard, largely because uh, Ash is like, please don't steal me from the tower. I might cease to exist in that spooky. And Severian's like, cool. Yeah. All right. So come with me now. Yeah. Uh, it and, rocks. <laughs> yeah. So Ash says, um, but your world is your world. I can exist there only if the probability of my existence is high. And Severian says, I existed in your house, didn't he? Didn't I? Sorry. And then he says, yes, but that was because your probability was complete. You are a part of the past from which my house and I have come. The question is whether I am the future to which you go. That is just, let's take a second here. So fucking clever. It's such a really cool way to look at it. Um, you know, there's a lot in science fiction about parallel universes and time travel. It's always so awkward. Yeah. And like heavy-handed and wrong-footed and just like bad. And here it's so elegantly phrased and, 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 and stipulated and put. And then, of course, it has to end in sadness, right? So he leaves and like Ash kind of like is haunting him, like his probability um, haunts him, but he disappears and is gone. Which makes sense because Ash's future is not the future to which Severian is going to, right? Because he's going to become the new son. So the last glaciation will not happen, which is why Ash ceases to exist. So now there's a bunch of fucking war and combat and shit. And then all, all those guys die. Foyla and Melito and all of the Ashian and the, the Pelerines, they all fucking die. Um, the, the camp is bombed. And after all that fighting, um, he meets God. So, we mentioned before that the Utark, um, or Autark, depending on how you pronounce it, um, is a God figure. And it's prior to this moment, you get invocations of him as the head of state you get invocations of him as an almost pope-like figure of a national church you get um president emperor um all these kinds of things and those are those are true in a sense but this also uh the <laughs> the level of this book has been allegory the whole time or the like the two astronauts meme of like it's all allegory it always has been um it basically <laughs> yeah. gets ratcheted way up in this last part um to the point where we basically can summarize everything that they say without describing the events because literally from the point that he meets the utark forward it's a series of monologues that or sometimes dialogues that he goes to one place and he has a dialogue and then he goes to another place and he has a dialogue and there's very which technically was true earlier but here even less happens between these um which touches again on our our notion of the that climax of book three is really the climax of 
this story. Yeah. Um. Uh, one last aside before I get to it, which beautifully, if you include Earth, touches on the Shakespearean structure of having the climax roughly be at Act 3, and then 4 and 5 are the um, what happens as a result of that. But... Which is almost certainly intentional because Gene Wolfe was immensely well-read and thought a lot about composition and structure. <laughs> Shocker. Um, so when he meets the Utark, it's at this point that you finally get the sense of him as God. So he basically, he gets injured. Um, he wakes up in this like funny looking garden. Um, it's very much evocative of like gar the Garden of Light. Um, the whole, one, the Islamic notion in general, and then two, um, the notion that the Hashishim, um, Hassani Sabah did for the Hashishim, whether he literally did that or not, we don't know. Um, so he wakes up and there's this funny little like boy who seems to be glowing. And he's like, I'm not sure if he's glowing because he glows or because he's just so youthful. And he's like rolling around like a fucking cat on pillows and shit. And he's like, <laughs> who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm the boss. Um, and he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm uh, I'm the Utark and I'm also the general. And then he's like, wait, I think I've seen you before. And he's like, yeah, I'm all kinds of other people, too. Um, Gene Wolfe doesn't so much explicitly say that this is um, that this is God and an invocation of how God works. But when he mentions that the Utark has many different masks that he wears, um, this touches again, something we've talked a lot about, about masks and is the mask the person? How many masks does one wear? And is there something behind the mask? He quite literally addresses that. Where he's like, sometimes I'm the Utark because sometimes the world needs a message from the ruler. Sometimes I'm a little, um, like a little noble from off in this area because that's the right voice to give, uh, to give this message. Sometimes I'm a mere civilian. Sometimes I'm a shopkeeper. Sometimes I'm a playwright, sometimes I'm a... And this is, if you're able to read between the lines whatsoever, this is a pretty clear, um, a man goes, uh, God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes, I've never forsaken you. I've come in many guises to guide you along the way. This is, it's, it's a pretty obvious thing that's going on. And it mirrors as well um, dialogues within the New Testament of Christ directly to God of like, why did you you know, abandon me in these moments. And he's like, well, I didn't, you know, I needed to. Um, so that goes on for a bit. And he, he gives the sci-fi reason he's had the El Zabo and, um, he, every Utark eats the previous Utark's flesh. And as a result, they always gain all the knowledge of the previous Utark. They also always carry an appendant around their neck, the El Zabo, so that the next Utark that finds them can, no matter how they die, can take the El Zabo and eat them. Um, on top of that, they additionally eat other people throughout their rule. This is how it's sort of explained, so that they take on, and this is almost like a divine right. Um, not, uh, I realized what I said there. That was not on purpose. It's a, it's like a right of your job. Because it's like, oh, in order to know how to best govern these kinds of people, you need to uh, eat one of their corpses so that you know yeah. what they're like. Um, but the result is that the Utark speaks in the royal we because they literally embody the royal we. They have thousands and thousands of consciousnesses inside their head. Um, and there is one loosely guiding conscious, but it similar to what Severian has experienced with the um, the melding 
of himself and Thecla. Um, it's more like there is a gestalt consciousness that isn't any of the individual ones that then guides them. If you've read any mystic text, if you've read any, even though just the weirder, more mystic chunks of the Bible or the Torah or the Quran or anything like that, you're going to recognize this as the language of the thought of God and the, the mind of God. And so they monologue about that for a while and they make explicit a lot of the stuff that we've been hinting at and saying like, oh, you know, you should read this thing this way or this has this overlay. Um, these conversations are where a lot of that textually comes from. That's not even just literary analysis. He, uh, This part of the book is Gene Wolfe looking directly into the camera and telling you how all the tricks work. Yeah. Um, they then are like, we have to go do a plot related thing. That's this very clearly like. I think it's like, oh, do you want to go look at this part of combat and uh, help guide the and Severian's like, OK, and it's it's pretty bluntly like, OK, Gene Wolfe needs to move to the next uh, next closing monologue. So they fly off and they get hit by a missile like right away. Um, they get straight newt out of the sky. They monologue more in the sky. Obviously, some of this discussion was was in in the sky uh, and much like uh the greatest uh, work of 21st century fiction, uh, Metal Gear Solid Five. Um, <laughs> the uh, helicopter crashes, and uh, in this moment of confusion, uh, one guy who is not Big Boss, I mean the Utark, has to become Big uh, the Utark. <laughs> Basically, the um, the Utark is very nearly killed, um, but because because he wears so many masks, no one knows necessarily that he is in fact the Utark. So. Vodalus um, rides up again and uh, captures them. And much to his surprise, he thinks he's just capturing like a, a guy. Yeah, he's like, it's it's either a soldier or a commander. That's why they're in a flying thing. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, fuck. Is that Severian? What? Yeah. And this leads to monologue number two of four, um, where uh, it turns out that Agia is actually the one that found them and Agia found them and bound them with her servant. And this is the big reveal. Hethor. That's yeah. right. Apparently Hethor has been serving Agia this whole time with his monsters, which obviously if you know that he's father in Ire and you know how things work, you're like, okay, that's um, not this. Cool. Yeah, this becomes another structural moment of that which is under is over and that which is over is under and the yeah. like you make wheels of power so, rather than hierarchies. Like like looking at it one step deeper, he was making the whips that guided Severian towards the new sun, right? Like Agia is his tool and all these beasts are his tool to force Severian towards the new sun. Right? Like they test him yeah. and shape him. And make him stronger. Um, and actually, Agia is working for him this entire time, right? Not the other way around. Although, we do know from the dream that Hethor is pining for his lost love. So, one of the other theories here is that Hethor actually makes Agia. Because Agia is a robot. Right? Yeah. We established that in the first episode. So, actually, kind of disgustingly, she's a sex robot. Yep. And he led her to believe that she runs the show instead of the other way around. 
and you get elements of um talos and baldanders here yeah um not exactly the the same he he differentiates obviously but there's there's valences it's um, a it's a mirror right for a mirror yeah. darkly so is there anything else we want to talk about until the end of the book not especially we can kind of skip so the conversation he has with Vodalus, he realizes that Vodalus is part of a pawn of the bigger plan um he he puts together based on conversations with um with the utark that Vodalus is uh likely a plant by the utark and done so that like if you know how this guy is going to react and you release him in a certain way, then you can control certain things. And this sort of is the way for Gene Wolf to account for um, theodicy, the problem of pain in the universe is like, Oh, well, God controls the devil too. Um, That's all part of the plan. Um, And the greater, the greater devil are these external things, these Lovecraftian creatures. Um, and so, you know, Severian kind of puts that together and he secretly eats the Utark at this point, um, which is with, uh, uh, with Father Rhaenyra's help, by the way. Yeah. It's like a uh, little shriveled doctor, though. It's, it's Father Rhaenyra. And so, you know, he, he eats the Utark and he, you know, he gains omniscience at this point. He becomes he becomes <laughs> God. Um, even you read the passages uh, when this happens and it becomes pretty clear that this is him taking a crack at like Blakeian mystic poetry um yeah does a pretty good crack because it's a hell of a fucking writer and then he's like okay i should go home now um which if it, if this weren't an allegorical work that would be really weird um be like yeah. dog you're in the middle of a war and he's like no i should simply uh, he's also by this point depending on how you read it he's either in like Colombia or in or in mexico or something like that like he's he's fairly far to the north and he's like yeah, i should go I should go all the way back to uh, Argentina. I should go all yeah. the way back. Um, so that's when Master Malrubius and Triskele <laughs> return. I, let's gloss over that. There is one really funny part where they arrive and save Severian because he's stranded in the middle of nowhere. And Master Malrubius literally says that it's a Deus Ex Machina. Like he says the yep. words Deus Ex Machina. Um, and refers to them, which is hilarious. Like Gene flipping you off and saying, fuck you, I just need to finish the story already. There's also, there's a little bit worth diving into here. Thankfully, it doesn't require all that much. He also looks direct, uh, Master Malrubius looks directly into the camera and goes, I'm from book five. We'll deal with that later. Um, (laughs) Which is, the you can tell by this point um, that it probably wasn't in his first draft, but by the time he got to this, he clearly had thoughts for Earth of the New Sun, which also explains why it came fairly shortly after he finished these. It was like three years later. Um, yeah, to, to be clear, Master Obis like says, you're going to send me yeah, in the and fifth so, book. And he also points out to space and he basically acknowledges that like, is heaven the edge of the universe? Is heaven another part of an infinitely large universe that you just have to go unreasonably far that wouldn't be realistic without spirit technology or is it actually outside of space that's science fiction so it's kind of all three anyway i need to drop you off at your house and then he's like wait aren't you guys dead and they're like kind of don't worry um (laughs) so also you make us alive 
Yeah. So you get at that point, that's where we get a lot of our notion of are the Hyroduels angels? This is the first clear implication. Is this all an allegory? Um, it had been strongly allegorical fig uh, prior to this, allegorical structurally. But this is the point, actually really one of the only points in the book that you get Master Malrubius going like, no, you should be reading this as spiritual allegory. This is not just the science fiction story. Um, he mentions Yasad, which is uh, the second Sephira in the Kabbalah Tree of Life. The bottom one, Malkut, yeah. is the physical world and a whole bunch of other stuff. Won't get too deep into it. Yasad is the very next one, which is symbolized by two things. The moon, scare quotes, space. Um, that's how a lot of contemporary cultists read it. And two, the opening of the do door to the divine realms. So all of the other realms of the divine, the other Sephira are on top of Yasad. You have to pass through Yasad to get to them, but that's the very next one. So this is Gene Wolfe playing pretty, pretty clear with, um, like basically the, the weird end of, uh, Abrahamic theology that like, Heaven as we know it is like a doorway to realms that we couldn't possibly think of. And that's why God can be so weird and so powerful because it's like he's he's in a realm beyond heaven and a blah, 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 blah. But they're yeah. like, anyway, we have to drop you off in the jungle. Uh, so then we get cool pirate boat adventures, um, which is a nice surprise. At this point, you're thinking we're just going to get fun little monologues, but then you get dropped on a pirate boat. So let's take a deep breath here. <laughs> um, and realize that we've reached the end of Book of the New Sun. Because what remains is for Severian to use his newfound knowledge to um, open up all the secrets of the Utark, understand what's going on, and then basically prepare himself for the test that Marubius and the Hyrodules were preparing him for. There's a lot of dotting side. I's and crossing T's. The stuff with Dorcas yeah. being the mother of the guy from the inn, that's made textual here. The fact that that guy was likely the father of Severian, that's made textual here. So a bunch of... um, Even the corkscrew nature of time is is literally made textual here. Um, yeah. So that... So that's why I don't want to delay on those on that stuff. Because you can just read it. Yeah. Right? It's pretty obvious. It's spelled out. Same thing with Marubius. Like he literally says, we are going to test you to become the new son. But I do want to close with something um, that Langdon said and just to point it out. If the Utark is God and Severian becomes the Utark, doesn't that mean that Severian becomes God? Now, saying yes while the correct answer is pretty much a tough sell, right? Like, this guy literally becomes God. But the thing is, it's actually mentioned in the book. And if you think about it, there was no other option. Kind of like with Master Ash, we're looking at something that's already happened, right? Severian has already become the new son, and he's sending this book back to us. So everything kind of collapses into him becoming the new son. Let me read you a passage. This is, we're back in the Pelerines camp, and Severian is praying to the conciliator. 
and he says um, the following. I did not deceive myself with the thought that I had it in me to lead millions. I asked only that I might lead myself. And as I did so, I seemed to see with a vision increasingly clear through the chink in the universe to a new universe bathed in golden light where my listener knelt to hear me. What had seemed a crevice in the world had expanded until I could see a face and folded hands and the opening, like a tunnel, running deep into a human head that for a time seemed larger than the head of Typhon carved upon the mountain. I was whispering into my own ear, and when I realized it, I flew into it like a bee and stood up. So, we've been throwing around this idea of Severian as the conciliator, right? But if you double-click on that idea and you, you think about what it actually means, that Severian is this hero, messiah, saint, come again, it actually means that, sure, the Hyrodules are guiding Severian and interfering with Severian's life, but it's ultimately Severian himself who is guiding himself as the new son, as the conciliator, as the Utark, as all these personages that are explicitly, inherently, beyond time. And then the, the next level, the allegorical, uh, allegorical one, and this is where I, I do a Langdon again, if man was made in the image of God, if Christ, the Son of God, was a man as well as God, then when man prays to Christ and when man prays to God, in a sense, man is praying to himself. Man is praying to humanity. And I think at the end of the day, you know, there's been so much I don't know if you realize how many hours it took us to prepare these episodes <laughs> and how much side reading beyond just the books, like like we said numerous times, forms and um, apocryphal books and essays and a whole other glossaries and dictionaries to just do this thing. But if you strip away everything that we've covered and all of the messages and all of the allegories that this book is trying to get across to you at the very end with Severian becoming the Utah and with this passage of him praying into himself and the kind of the closing of this loop, the main message of this book is that to do good is to discover within yourself the things that make us um, human which is not some modernist like nature or essence or whatever. It's at the end of the day, empathy and the ability to reason with the world and to um, work with others and, and empathize with others. The story is the story of Severian turning away from torture and turning towards salvation and empathy 
and redemption and forgiveness. That's the story. Like if someone asked me, you know, when I wasn't doing a podcast <laughs> and I had to maintain some form of suspension, they asked me, what is the book of the new son about? I would tell them that it's about that. It's about the journey from cruelty and violence and um, roughness of the heart, as the Bible says, towards, you know, acceptance and softness and um, redemption. And just to reiterate, this is the greatest science fiction novel ever written. Like, I hope that we've managed to somewhat get across that feeling. Um, and someone, somewhat, sorry, convince you to read this series more than once. It, because, I, I just one last thing. I'm sorry, I know I'm rambling. On. One oh, last no. Thing. oh, no, go on. The first time that I read these books, and Severian, like, drank the Alzabo and became the Utak, I was shocked. I was like, wait, what? This guy? <laughs> this, like, nobody? He's going to be the Utak? Like, he's literally the new son? I was caught completely on the wells. I had no idea that was going to happen. And then the second time that I read it, you know, already knowing that that was going to happen, I was blindsided by, like, other stuff, like, starting to figure out who Dorcas is and Agia and all these relations and stuff like that. But then now when I read it for the third time, I was like, how did I miss all this philosophy? Like, how did I miss all these ideas about what fiction is and what aesthetics are and how they work and what faith is and how morality works and that stuff? And I'm going to read this a fourth time at some point in my life. And I promise you that there will be more that I will discover. And honestly, like, how many more books can you say that about? Like, five more books? Six more books? Ten. I'll be generous with you. Like, it's incredible how far the palimpsest goes of Book of the New Sun. We haven't even spoken about Earth and Long Sun <laughs> and Short Sun and all that stuff. Um, it's just, it's mind-boggling. And I think at the end, like, I'd like to, for us to take a second, like, just, you know, survey all we have done and say, what the fuck? How, how did Gene Wolfe do this? How did he do this? That's so for, for me, this is uh, perhaps the second best science fiction book ever written. I'm, there are exactly, it, we mentioned this before, it's worth mentioning again, there are exactly two camps in the world of science fiction that, Book of the New Sun is the greatest book ever written within the genre, or that Dune is the greatest book written within the genre. Those are both camps. There's not really a strong argument outside of those two. And the fascinating thing about that to me is how immensely similar the two books are. Yeah. Um, they both chart, if you chart the main sequence of Dune as well, up to God Emperor of Dune, you have similar four, uh, four book spans. The only major difference in a lot of ways is that Dune follows more an Islamic uh, interpretation of the theological component of the story versus a um, a Christian one. Um, both are laced with little bits of uh, Judaic um, thought as well. But they both form as kind of taught parallel with one another. The, the more that you read one, the more that the other one opens up. Then you take what new things you've learned about that other one and come back to the first one that you'd read and you see even more 
the the capacity there i think is mostly fast one on a literary end that's fascinating both are books that the i read them first as children i i was lucky in a way that my dad was born in 1950 so a lot of these books were brand new as he was at the proper age to just be reading science fiction for the love of it so i had a bunch of first edition copies that were just my dad's and he just foisted them on me um I then was lucky that I had a family that also liked them a lot and had like uh, literature degrees and sociology degrees and stuff like that. And like my mom, my aunt has a PhD in like pedagogy and does stuff for the state of South Carolina. So there was a lot of discussion of of books and literature and all that kind of stuff. Um, then you reread them as uh, like a teen or something, and you start put as you're entering political consciousness, and you start to pick up little bits of those components you read them as a 20 something where you're learning about your relation to faith whether you don't have one at all whether you have a strained one whether you think it's beautiful metaphor but not real all that all that kind of stuff um you pick up more components um you learn about the colonial and post-colonial history of the world this is what this is an area that i i think dune's internal politics wind up being better than uh book of the new sons for whatever that's mm -hmm. worth um yeah let's say but, something uh, yeah uh <laughs> but the the primary thing is that at at a certain point it both of them contain the capacity to teach you an important thing about allegory that i think is lost especially as people get older and especially if they grew up in a heavily religious area um that they eventually learn to scorn that I think is perhaps undue. It becomes sort of out of vogue to have like a deeply spiritually allegorical tale, mostly because we think only of what religion has meant to us in a material capacity or an experiential capacity and not necessarily from a literary capacity. That big question of why do people care about these things? And we can present the false notion that because they think it's literally real. And it's not to say that people don't think that, you know, God is real, that angels are real, that afterlife is real, you know, or all the various religions. It's just that that's not why people become religious. That's not why it matters to people. That emerges after the fact. It becomes important because of those root things that Eden was saying this book is about. Now, obviously, those aren't just contained in, in religious or spiritual works, but Sometimes we believe it, we've made ourselves wiser to deliberately becoming um, deadened and nerve, uh, like I, deadened and nerve dead, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, my brain's not in a great compositional mood today, apparently. When we become nerve dead to the notion of the beauty of those things or the insight of those things, uh, like notions of grace get written out of, say, political discussions in leftist space quite a lot. When on a very blunt level, the notion of the inherent dignity of of addicts and that addiction doesn't stain your dignity whatsoever is partly a function of grace. We're just we've just omitted the word because we think it makes it work better. Um, that's a thing that I find really powerful and deeply compelling about these books, even as even as I get older, because I'm not religious whatsoever, despite citing a bunch of that stuff i have no belief in god i have no belief in the afterlife anything like that just it's it's totally gone in me i once was christian it's there's zero percent remaining but 
sometimes you can learn to tap back into what was it about that that was so compelling to me, if not the belief that it was material reality. And it's precisely the things that Eden was talking about of like, this is a book at root about the turning away and the valorizing of cruelty and pain uh, as acts of wisdom toward um, compassion, which can involve pain. Like that, that's the other complexity of this book is that he doesn't say that like the path of Severian the Utarch is not one devoid of violence. It's just measured violence, one that's measured with like, and it's painful to carry out. Like he, he has a discussion later on where it's like, well, we get rid of the torturers and he goes, no, but we need to, I want the torturers to experience the torture that they go through so that they know what they are carrying out so that it is yeah. judiciously applied. And those kinds of notions I think are like, that's part of what makes this so rich to me is Gene Wolfe, the man, may have been a deeply conservative Catholic his entire life. That that just is a bare biographical fact. But Gene Wolfe, the writer, had an intensely sensitive capacity for understanding the anxieties, pains, and desires that generate those things, and then to communicate those things. And I just... Fuck, what a beautiful book. Yeah. Okay, so what happens now? Um, what's going to happen is that we're going to take a break. I don't know how long. Like originally we said like two months, right? But I've actually managed to read a lot of what I wanted to read anyway. So maybe we'll make it shorter. We'll see. But we'll take a break. We're not committing to anything, but it won't be longer than two months. And then we'll come back with a new season of Death Sentence. And we'll do a few things. First of all, we have some sick, fucking sick out, like new out for the podcast. So goddamn new... stoked. I yeah. fucking flipped out when I saw it. Yeah, it's super cool and new logo and everything. And you know, it like technically doesn't matter, but also it does. Um, and it's pretty awesome. But also we're going to stop talking about the book of the new sun <laughs> uh, and go back to talking about other books newer stuff, uh, but also stuff that we've done in the past. I have a few solo episodes I want to do. Um, we have a couple interviews that we have uh, lined yeah, so up, or at least tentative. We have, uh, we, we're going to bring back guests. One of the big things of this past season, as I mentioned very early in the season, was getting over the hump that was caused by the pandemic, getting over the hump that was caused by intense, um, like, the, the strain of life. Like, Gareth had to deal with a bunch of stuff regarding housing, looking after his son, um, job stuff, like normal life stuff that an adult yeah. carries. I've been dealing with similar. Eden's been dealing with similar. And so a lot of this past season was us trying to figure out how do we balance this so that everything can keep going, but it doesn't um, collapse in on itself. And thankfully, it feels like we found a much like a, a workable balance. Yeah. Yeah. So one of our main objectives, as Langdon said, is to bring back guests and do more interviews. Um, other than that, it's going to be Death Sentence, uh, as you know, and potentially maybe love it. I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. Tolerate. <laughs> yeah. I'll accept tolerate. Just click. Tolerate, Just for click. sure. <laughs> so, one last thing. I mentioned a few times like how much work this was. 
And I'll be honest with you, it's always that much work, right? Like, <laughs> it's never just sitting down and reading a book. And we don't do this often, but I feel like here at the end, it's the right place to do it. Um, we have a Patreon. Just look for Death Sentence. It's not that, you know, we're not kidding ourselves. Like, neither one of us will be able to, like, quit our day jobs yeah. from the Patreon money. That, that's not our goal, right? It's just a way for you to tell us that you want us to keep doing this thing. We use the money for like us stuff, um, but that also enables us to get art. And if we have any other costs from the podcast, we'll, we'll take it from that. But in more ways, it's just a way to show us that you're out there, right? Like number of listens on SoundCloud is a really bad metric for how much engagement we're getting and how many people are actually listening. But every time that someone supports us on Patreon, it tells us that people out there um, really care. And thank you to everyone who already supports us. It's incredible and amazing. And I've gotten some really incredible messages on there. Um, and we appreciate you. And I will mention that if we reach 150, right now we're at like 120, I think, um, we will do another impossible book. Reminder that this whole book of the new something is made possible by Patreon. Like we reached 100 and that's why we did it. And on 150, do we want to commit, Langdon? Do we want to make our lives miserable? I think, I. so we had been ruminating on doing Dahlgren, which... Uh, yeah, I was going to say, should we commit to Dahlgren and then like rue the day? I'd, I'd, I'd love it. There's a lot to dive into about Samuel Delaney as a person. Some good, yeah. some wildly bad. Um, A lot yeah. in that book. A lot, yeah, that's... um. So yeah, maybe, fuck it. Let's commit commit. again. No, don't well, do it. Don't do it. That's fair. Don't do we it. We also want to hear from you guys. Like if yeah. So one, if if that excites you, tell us. If there's some other, and really the there is no bound for how difficult we're willing to go. I've I've read Finnegan's Wake before. Um, I, I probably do... that would take like fifty episodes. Yeah. No. 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 I won't do. <laughs> I won't do Infinite Jest. I just. I won't do it. It doesn't Same, matter. I how... don't like the book. So I. Yeah. You'll like it. Although uh, Wallace's uh, Pale King is a good book. Um, I haven't read that one because yeah. I hated Infinite Jets too much. Um, but yeah. I trust you. So so if you have other like impossible books, we also have uh, maybe Nick Halkowitz's Nomon. That's pretty impossible. We might do that. Um, there are other candidates out there. And that's it. Um, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you again soon. Actually, one last note before we sign off. This one's personally from me. I was very scared at the beginning of this season because I had never produced this before. I hadn't handled any of the infrastructure, any of the distribution that had all been done by Gareth because he'd founded it. I was anxious about whether my voice was an addition or was a uh, something that was tolerated or something that was generally negative compared to his his generally superlative work. I really really love Gareth's work. Um, even on the episodes without me entirely. So it was with a lot of trepidation that I even continued doing this, mostly out of nerves. So I also want to personally thank you guys and also Eden specifically for um how all of this went. It went so much better 
than I had anticipated and like light years beyond what I feared. And that's just, um, as we've said before, you make stuff, you hope people care about it, but the fact that it's done this well really humbles me and means a tremendous amount to me. So I'm actually bad. No, fuck you, Eden. No, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that this was the hidden track. Um, <laughs> if you stay that few minutes of silence. Bye-bye.